Welcome to A Hard Look, the Administrative Law Review Podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Hello and welcome. I hope you're doing well today and listening to me now with a warm cup of chai tea, a pumpkin spice latte, or whatever warm fall beverage floats your boat. We're recording on a pretty sunny fall day. My name is Alexander Nam, and I'm ALR's Senior Technology Editor and Curator of this podcast. Before we begin this episode, I would like to provide you all with a trigger warning as this episode touches on topics involving a personal account of discrimination, misogyny, and sexism that may be triggering for some of our listeners. As with the majority of our episodes, we will provide a transcript of the audio on the hard look section of our website at administrativelawreview.org. Definitely check it out if you would find reading this episode easier than listening to it. Today's episode touches on the topic of judicial accountability and poses the question, are judges above the law? In 1980, then-President Jimmy Carter signed the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act into law, which provided procedures for employees of the federal judiciary to file a complaint against a federal judge for misconduct or incapacity. These complaints would be filed with a local circuit judicial council, a regional component within the Judicial Conference of the United States which is the overarching administrative and policymaking body of the federal courts. However, the journey a complaint must take to succeed in a judge's removal or even mere sanctions being placed upon them is a long and treacherous process, a process that can be potentially damaging to the professional reputations and mental well-being of the victims reporting the judicial misconducts. Not to mention that judges within the D.C. courts are outside of the jurisdiction of the statute and are held up by a more lenient complaint process. I definitely want to acknowledge that this reality can feel very defeating and crushing for people within marginalized groups entering the legal profession, especially when laws like Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which created employment discrimination protections for mistreatment on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, and as expanded by the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, protections on the basis of sexuality and gender identity do not apply to federal judges. However, the tides may be shifting as elected officials and organizations are providing more attention to address this issue. Organizations including the Legal Accountability Project, a nonprofit aiming at ensuring that law clerks have positive clerkship experiences, while extending support and resources to those who do not. Today, we are honored to be joined by the president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project, Aliza Schatzman. Aliza earned her BA from Williams College and her JD from Washington University School of Law. At WashU Law, Aliza served as associate editor for the Journal of Law and Policy. During law school, Aliza interned with four different components of the U.S. Department of Justice. After law school, Aliza clerked in the D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term, intending to launch her career as a homicide prosecutor. In March of 2022, Aliza submitted written testimony for the House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing about the lack of workplace protections in the federal judiciary, detailing her personal experience with gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation by a former D.C. judge. Aliza now writes and speaks regularly about judicial accountability. She has been published in numerous forms, including the UCLA Journal of Gender and Law, Harvard Journal on Legislation, uh, Yale Law and Policy Review, 
NYU Journal of Legislation and Public Policy, Above the Law, Law 360, Slate, Miss Magazine, and Balls and Strikes. Eliza also has a forthcoming article to be published on our online companion, The Accord, which argues that DC courts should be covered under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, the law which governs judicial misconduct, complaints against federal judges. As a disclaimer to our listeners, these are the personal views of Eliza Schatzman and are not a reflection of her employers, clients, organizations, or other individuals in which these opinions can be imputed. Eliza, graduating law school and beginning your first position can be a very exciting time for most first-year attorneys. I mean, it's just mind-boggling to think how close I am to that very moment in my life. Can you describe how you initially felt beginning your clerkship with the D.C. Superior Court? Sure. So I had just graduated from WashU Law in spring of 2019. I just sat for the DC bar and then took the MPRE the following week. So probably a little bit burned out, but um, excited to launch my career, what I thought would be launching my career as a homicide prosecutor in the DC US Attorney's Office. So in that respect, I was excited to get my career moving. But sometimes our excitement is tarnished by the wrong people in positions of authority. Can you talk about how you're treated by the judge you clerked with? Definitely touch on whatever you feel comfortable opening up about. Sure. So I'm happy to share my story. I've been sharing it a lot recently. I mean, I like to clarify. I say it's my story, but really it's, it's my life. Um, and, you know, very few former clerks are willing to speak openly about the worst of circumstances. Every year, every clerkship application cycle, so much ink is spilled to talk about the best of circumstances when a judge and clerk develop a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship and all the messaging around clerkships at law schools is that this position confers only professional benefits. So happy to share my experience in the hopes that it will kind of empower other folks to demand safer workplaces. So decided to clerk in DC Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term because I knew that I wanted to be a homicide AUSA in the DC US Attorney's Office, and I knew that those AUSAs appeared before DC Superior Court judges. Uh, the messaging at my law school, WashU Law, was uniformly positive. I was told to apply broadly, accept the first clerkship I was offered, so I did all those things. Unfortunately, beginning just weeks into this clerkship, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was aggressive and nasty and a disappointment. The day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, so big day in my life, he called me into his inner chambers, got in my face and said, you're bossy and I know bossy because my wife is bossy. What? I was just devastated. I mean, this was my first job out of law school. It was a couple months into my legal career. And this judge seemed to just be singling me out for mistreatment. I remember crying in the courthouse bathroom, crying myself to sleep at night. I just desperately wanted to be reassigned to a different judge for the rest of the clerkship. My workplace in the DC courts didn't even have an employee dispute resolution or EDR plan that might've enabled that to happen. I confided in a couple attorney mentors who advised me to stick it out. So I tried to, and I knew that I needed one year of work experience to be eligible for most government jobs. So we eventually transitioned to remote work during the pandemic. 
and I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and work remotely. And the judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. So he, and then he hung up, hung up on me. So I reached out to DC Court's HR and they said there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges, that judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. Then they asked me whether I knew that I was an at-will employee. Then I reached out to my law school for, I don't know, support, assistance, advice. And I found out that the judge had a history of misconduct and that law school officials, including our clerkships director, who still works there, and several professors knew back at the time I'd accepted the clerkship, but chose not to share the information with me because they wanted another student to clerk. That's, that's horrific. I can't imagine how that felt or the perseverance it took to continue to work in that and just the perseverance that you have just to talk about this story and talk about the trauma that you experience. Um, was there any process uh, to report? I mean, was there any process to maybe even just get reassigned? Um, how were you able to cope with this and like what ultimately happened? Right. So at the time my clerkship ended, the DC courts had not yet implemented an EDR plan. They implemented that one year after my clerkship had ended. Um, so that's why I'd reached out to HR to report and they said, you know, there's nothing they could do. And DC courts judges, which we'll get into later, are Senate confirmed. So they have some unique protections. Um, I'd reached out to my law school. I mean, hoping they would make sure that no future students clerked for this judge and outrageously a year later the clerkships director reached out to me and asked me if i'd say nice things about this judge to other washu law students considering the clerkship um so there really was no good place to report i think the dc courts like to think that they've made improvements since then but they as we'll talk about later edr is enormously flawed following your dismissal from the clerkship i know just like from reading your piece in the accord you're able to land what was then your dream job special assistant uh to the u.s attorney at the dc u.s attorney's office but what ended up happening yeah so after my clerkship ended that was spring of 2020 took me about a year to get back on my feet after that i did during those early days connect with another dc courts judge who directed me to the dc commission on judicial disabilities and tenure the regulatory body for dc judges and that's where i ultimately filed my judicial complaint at the time i decided to wait to file that even though i'd written it and sent it to some folks to like look at it because um, i feared the judge would retaliate against me so interviewed for jobs and it was hard because questions were asked about why did your clerkship end early and why aren't you listing the judge as a reference so yeah i landed my dream job as a salsa in the dc u.s attorney's office which is a prosecutor position and i moved back to dc in the summer of 2021 and i was two weeks into training at the usao so i'd already started working there when i received some more really devastating news that altered the course of my life I was told by USAO leadership that the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. And then a couple days later, the USAO offered me the opportunity to interview for another job with the office, and they revoked that offer as well, based on this judge's same negative reference. At this point, I was two years into my legal career, 
And this judge just seemed to have limitless power to ruin my reputation and destroy my career. So I added some sections to my judicial complaint about the negative reference, which I hadn't yet seen, but believed was gender-based, filed out with the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, hired attorneys, and in the summer and fall of 2021, participated into the investigation into the now former judge. And we were partway through the investigation when some attorneys reached out to me privately to let me know this judge was on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct at the time he filed the negative reference about me. But the USAO wasn't alerted of that until January 2022, when pursuant to the terms of our private settlement, so separate from anything the judiciary could or would do for me, the former judge issued a clarifying statement addressing some but not all of his really outrageous claims about me. But by then the damage had been done. It had been way too long and I'm pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. Wow. That's just wild what you went through. Um, and can you describe your experience filing the complaint with the Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure? And what was ultimately decided by the commission? Sure. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I don't talk about it too much. And actually, the article with the Accord is probably my fullest, like, statement so far about it, but I think it's important for people to kind of understand the realities of a judicial misconduct investigation. And when I talk about the fact that law clerks are not protected under Title VII and a judicial complaint or an EDR complaint are their only methods to seek redress, it's important to understand just how insufficient they are. So I filed this complaint in July of 2021. And the commission told me that it interested them for several reasons. And they didn't tell me what the reasons were. And I later realized it's because the judge was already under investigation for other things. So I filed this complaint, hired attorneys, and the, the commission rules and procedures, and I get into this in my article, are just, they're not even really delineated in their rules and statutes. Um, it's enormously disorganized. They can decide whether to interview witnesses. They can decide whether to hold a hearing. And there is literally no transparency into these processes. If they decide not to hold a hearing, if they decide to dismiss your complaint, they do not need to tell you why. And if you look on the commission's website, they have not released a report with data on the outcomes of these complaints since 2017. That is outrageous. The, DC public and attorneys need to know about the outcomes of these complaints. And the data from 2016 and 2017 shows that the vast majority of the complaints are dismissed either before or after a preliminary investigation. So I spoke with the commission several times, provided them a list of witnesses I thought they should interview. Uh, we had no transparency into who they actually spoke with, if anyone. The investigator spent like several hours needling me, asking me why I couldn't adjust to the judge's unique work style of harassing me. She told me that I must have done something wrong because the judge hired me in the first place. And it is unclear how the DC courts fare in the Title VII distinction, whether a law clerk could sue under Title VII, we think not. We, me, my attorneys, fed court scholars I've spoken with, it's unclear whether a law clerk could sue under Section 1983. 
But regardless, the outcome of this investigation was important to my ability to move forward with my case and also to be able to say that this judge who filed this crazy reference about me was, it was adjudicated to have committed misconduct. So we knew it would be important. And there was just no transparency. We'd go weeks without hearing from the commission. We didn't know what was going on. And then finally, uh, late September, I remember sitting at the desk I'm sitting at right now uh, when I got a call alerting me that the commission was dismissing my complaint after a preliminary investigation. And I just remember sitting at this desk and bawling because I knew that the outcome would be, I knew it would make it harder to move forward, to speak publicly. I knew that private claims against the judge would be made harder now that the complaint was dismissed. And I believe the commission thought that dismissing my complaint would silence me. And I'm confident that the former judge and his legal team thought that too. And it really hasn't silenced me in any way. It definitely made me feel shame in the early days. And, you know, some close friends were very supportive during those early days when I was figuring out how to speak publicly. And, you know, there were several months when I just didn't know when people realized my complaint had been dismissed, whether that would make me seem, I don't know, less credible, less something, I'm not sure. But when you think about the fact that the limited data we have on judicial misconduct complaints, the vast majority of these complaints are dismissed, it makes you realize that it says nothing about the complainant and everything about the commission's just incompetent processes. And I, as I learned more about federal processes for addressing wrongful conduct, one of which is the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, mm-hmm. where it's insufficient process as well, but at least in those instances for federal complaints, if a judge, the chief judge dismisses a complaint, they have to issue findings of fact and the complainant has appeal rights. And I just realized that would have been so much more helpful for me. To this day, it is unclear to me why the commission dismissed my complaints and I will never get insight into that. Um, And I think it's important for people to realize when the federal judiciary or when state judiciaries make statements about how this is sufficient process, like you can file a judicial complaint, you can file an EDR complaint. This is outrageously inadequate process and it's just so important that people get a window into these procedures. And I think the commission, the DC commission likes to message that these are supposed to be secretive processes and we don't want anybody to know what's going on. But they're using that as a smokescreen to get away to also avoid accountability for their incompetence. No, it, they seem incredibly <laughs> incompetent. Um, it, they definitely didn't silence you. I mean, you also filed a written testimony to the House Judiciary um, in March of this year. Can you describe to our listeners you know, what you wrote to the House Judiciary? Sure. So... During the summer of 2021, when I was going through the formal judicial complaint process, I became aware of proposed legislation called the Judiciary Accountability Act, or JAA, that's H.R. 4827 and S2553, and that would extend Title VII protections to federal law clerks and federal public defenders, enabling folks like me to sue our harassers and seek damages for harms done to our lives, careers, and future earning potentials. So I reached out to some House and Senate offices involved with drafting that bill to share my story, advocate for the legislation, and advocate for an amendment to cover the DC courts, which is where I clerked, and they're an Article I federal court, which confers some unique protections on judges who are Senate confirmed for 15-year terms. 
So I initially thought that my first public statement about my experience would be a law journal article with the UCLA Journal of Gender and Law. So I've been working on that. When a House Judiciary hearing occurred in March 2022, it afforded me the opportunity to speak sooner, which I appreciated. So I submitted written testimony sharing uh, my story, advocating for the bill and advocating for an amendment to cover the D.C. courts, which is where I clerked. So let's jump into um, the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, uh, which we kind of previously talked about um, and how it doesn't apply to Article One judges. So it didn't apply in your situation. But what is the process of filing a complaint under that statute if, let's say, it was extended to Article One judges? So the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, or the JCND Act, does cover some Article I courts, including okay. bankruptcy courts, Court of Federal Claims. It covers many, which is part of the reason why I think it should cover the D.C. courts as well. Okay. And okay. so that's, yeah. It's confusing as to which courts it covers and why. And like Article I law clerks right after my testimony, a bunch of them reached out to me and told me they didn't even realize that they might not be protected under these various pieces of legislation. So it's important to clarify. Mm-hmm. So that law was passed in 1980, and it's the process by which law clerks, attorneys, or also litigants can file a complaint against a life-tenured federal judge or some Article I judges. Uh, Basically, the complainant files their complaint with the chief judge of the circuit, which is important. This is a judge's boss or a judge's colleague. So in this process, judges are tasked with investigating their judiciary colleagues, and I think that Uh, Any efforts at internal self-discipline lead to just a lack of discipline. So someone like a law clerk would file their complaint with the chief judge of the circuit. Mm -hmm. They'd review that. They could dismiss the complaint, in which case they have to issue findings of fact and the complainant has appeal rights. They can hold a hearing and they can convene a special committee of judges to review the complaint. And how successful have these complaints been? I don't know if just in the research you've done into this and your experience? Not successful at all. Okay. Very few complaints are filed under the JCND Act each year. The federal judiciary only within the past couple of years even started, even like separated law clerks into a separate complainant category. So we only have data on a few years worth of law clerk complaints, but it's typically between five and 11 complaints that are filed by law clerks out of the more than 1000 complaints filed each year. So the number filed is negligible and most are dismissed. And there are a couple reasons for that. I mean, law clerks are actively dissuaded in the legal community from filing complaints against their harassers. They fear reputational harm in the legal community from other attorneys and potential employers. And they fear retaliation by the judges who mistreated them. And there really are no good processes for preventing or addressing retaliation either. So they haven't been successful, but that doesn't mean that law clerks shouldn't file complaints. And one avenue for my advocacy is really encouraging more current and former clerks to speak out and file complaints against those who mistreated them. Um, It's not sufficient process, but it's the process we have and it's important. And my, my conversations with judges definitely suggest to me that they take this seriously. Not all judges, but some, some understand that it's serious, that if a complaint is filed, they need to hire an attorney. It is it is a challenging process. And so. Yeah. And, and talking about your advocacy, um, you recently started a nonprofit, the Legal Accountability Project. Can you dive into just the mission of that organization and just what the work is? 
Sure. So the Legal Accountability Project basically seeks to ensure that law clerks have a positive clerkship experience and then extend support and resources to the ones who don't. I think of the nonprofit as the resource I wish existed when I was a WashU law student applying for clerkships, a law clerk facing harassment and unsure where to go for help, and then a former clerk engaging in the formal judicial complaint process. And we're working on two major initiatives in collaboration with law schools right now. The first one is a centralized clerkships reporting database that's going to democratize information about judges. So you as a law student considering a clerkship or an externship can have as much info about as many judges as possible before you make what I think is a really important decision about your career. I speak with a lot of law students and I'll typically say, so you want to clerk. How will you avoid judges who harass their clerks? Some might say, well, I'd ask somebody. Who are you going to ask? Clerkship directors tell me, we tell students to do our research, do their research. But what research are you going to do when so little information is available about these judges on an equitable basis? So what we're doing is working with law schools and we're going to have law clerk alumni create an account with us and write a report about their judge and clerkship anonymously if they choose. And we think that law clerks who face harassment will report anonymously. And then... If your law school participates, your alums report into the database and you as a student can read all the reports. But importantly, not just your law school alumni's reports, but the reports from all the alums at all the schools participating in the database. Um, And then we are also doing a workplace assessment of the federal and state judiciaries. It's a climate survey that'll finally answer the question, how pervasive is harassment in the judiciary? Uh, The federal judiciary has been just notoriously unwilling to conduct a climate assessment, which I think is an enormous red flag. Uh, They recently announced they are going to be conducting one, but I think it's pretty toothless because they've not committed to reporting the results publicly, which again, red flag. Um, So yeah, we are going to be sending that to the past 10 to 20 years worth of law clerk alumni. And the third aspect of our work, which law schools are generally supportive of, is programming. I'm going to a lot of law schools to share my story, talk about the scope of the problem, talk about solutions. I'll be at American's Washington College of Law later this fall, and we're excited about that event. And uh, yeah, we're just really seeing a groundswell of student support on these campuses. It's been enormously positive. I am just galvanized by the student response. And a lot of deans and clerkship directors are coming to our events to see what we're doing. We typically meet with them, we, myself and my co-founder. Uh, after the events, talk about what we're doing. And it's just been a great response. And, you know, most law schools are very willing to engage with me, very willing to consider making changes. We have a couple of hostile holdouts, but we are working on them too. And we just visited one last week. <laughs> so that was fun. But that's basically what we're doing. No, that's that sounds amazing. And I know with like a, other places of employment, they have like online places where it, Previous employees can report, you know, their previous employers, but in the legal profession, that really doesn't exist. So I think that's just an amazing thing that your organization is doing, like providing that resources for, you know, new incoming law students. A lot of us are first generation, have never worked in the legal field, don't have family or even close relatives or maybe even friends or friends of family that have worked in the legal field. So that's, I just think that's going to be such an important tool for a lot of uh, first year, uh, first year graduates coming out of law school. Yeah, there really is just a lack of transparency and lack of data in the legal profession, but particularly surrounding these clerkships. And I, 
I think we've really attorneys have conferred some power on these judges and then judges continue to confer power on themselves which really just leads to a culture of fear and silence one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks and that's really what we seek to combat and you mentioned first-gen students those folks face unique considerations they're probably they have less information about judges and clerkships and they're probably not in as good of a position to say no if a clerkship is offered and that's dangerous and I think some clerkship directors are backing off the advice that you must accept the first clerkship you're offered but if something feels wrong in an interview or you learn something about a judge you need to be able to say no and I think that's something the messaging particularly for first gen students is challenging around clerkships and we're definitely trying to address that as well but there's really just a lack of information and I'm of the opinion that more transparency is always better and certainly in a profession like a clerkship, people don't really realize what an enormous power disparity there is between these judges and clerks and how enormously isolated the workspace is. I mean, I talk to students coming off a judicial internship or externship and they say, my judge was great, but after the summer I can totally understand how the power disparity and the isolation you're talking about, how those things would come about. And I don't think I realized when I was applying for clerkships what the workplace would really look like. And I just wish I had more information. I think I might've made a different decision. So outside of transparency and your organization, um, there's also, you also advocate for the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act being amended uh, to better protect clerks and other federal judicial staff. Uh, Can you just dive a little bit deeper into how you see that being amended? Yes, so I definitely think the JCND Act should be amended to cover the DC courts, which is where I clerked, and any other Article I courts that are currently not covered. But I think it needs other improvements as well. One thing the Judiciary Accountability Act would do was it would, it would clarify that judicial misconduct investigations won't cease if a judge currently, currently they do cease, if a judge steps down amid a misconduct investigation. And if they retire, they can continue to collect their lifetime pension after committing misconduct. If they resign, they forfeit the pension, but the investigation still ceases. So I think it should be amended such that folks' pensions are revoked if they step down amid a misconduct investigation, and those investigations should continue, even if they step down. Additionally, I really think that judiciary processes for addressing wrongful conduct, whether that's JC and DACT or EDR, need to be taken out of the judiciary's chain of command. Judges should not be tasked with disciplining, investigating their judiciary colleagues. As we talked about earlier, self-discipline leads to a lack of discipline for these judges. And I think it's enabled them to get away with outrageous misconduct for decades. So those are just some of the reforms I think are necessary. But it's also really important that the JAA is passed. I mean, law clerks cannot wait another year for these urgently needed reforms. And regardless of how many people will actually take the strong step of suing their Senate confirmed supervisors, they need the protections and they need the ability to sue. So, and it's also, I think, exempting the judiciary from Title VII and having such a weak Judicial Conduct and Disability Act sends the message to judges, you're above the laws you enforce. As you mentioned, uh, the Judicial Accountability Act would um, expand Title VII and allow it to apply to the judiciary. Um, But can you dive deeper into 
what else this bill proposes to do if enacted. Absolutely. I think the JA is critically important legislation. And I mean, it's the floor and not the ceiling for judicial accountability legislation, but it's super important. It would extend Title VII to judiciary employees, including law clerks and federal public defenders, but it would do other important things too. It would specify that judges who retire, resign, or die amid a misconduct investigation that those investigations won't seek. It would clarify that Title 28 of the U.S. Code, which defines judicial misconduct, includes discrimination and retaliation. And it would standardize these employee dispute resolution or EDR plans in all the federal courthouses. The judiciary has a model EDR plan, but court, individual courthouses are notoriously not following it. And then it would also impose some really important data collection requirements on the judiciary. We require them to collect and report data on the outcomes of judicial misconduct complaints. It would require them to collect and report the results of an annual workplace assessment and would require the judiciary to collect and report data on the lack of diversity in law clerk and federal public defender hiring. I think just the lack of data and lack of transparency in these areas has enabled judges to get away with misconduct. And the first step to crafting effective solutions is really quantifying the scope of these problems. So it's enormously important legislation. It is basically stalled in Congress right now, and we're nearing an election, which is going to make it harder. But I think this needs to be revived in the next Congress. And it really does have bipartisan support behind the scenes. I speak to lots of congressional offices that are very interested in this. And I really think the number of co-sponsors does not reflect the broad public support and broad congressional support this legislation could have. It's beyond time to amend Title VII to cover the judiciary. Well, before we end this episode, um, there was a question that I posed to our listeners at the beginning of the episode, and I think that it could be a great place to conclude the episode. So I'll ask you the question. Are judges above the law? No one is above the law. I think that some misbehaving judges, including my former supervisor, believe that they are above the law and that nobody will question them. In the case of my former supervisor, no one at the USAO questioned him. He was a judge, and he believed no one could touch him, I think. I think that the laws we have in place right now continue to send a troubling message to some judges that they are above the laws they enforce, but nobody's above the law, and I continue to speak about this every day, and I intend to continue doing so until the laws are changed and law clerks are better protected. And... You know, the judiciary is a small, weirdly powerful lobby. Law clerks, less powerful, but I speak for them. And I hope that I'm sending a message to judges every day. You are certainly not above the law, and law clerks are watching what you're doing. And for our listeners who are interested in learning more about Aliza's story and the nuances surrounding the issue, definitely be on the lookout for her upcoming court piece that should be published in early November of 2022, titled The DC Courts Are Article 1 Federal Courts, and they should be regulated that way. Well, I would like to thank our guest for her substantial contributions to our discussion today, the American Bar Association's Administrative Law Section, the Administrative Law Review, and of course, our podcast own Eva Bojewick for assistance and support in creating this episode. If you're new to our show and enjoyed the episode, give the episode a like and be sure to follow and share our podcast with your colleagues, friends, and family. Thank you, and you'll hear from us soon as we discuss other topics impacting administrative law. 